Good evening. What makes for a good trade, a good exchange? If we're talking trading cards, uh, whether baseball or basketball cards that I used to trade when I was a kid, or maybe Pokemon cards that my sons have traded, for it to be a good exchange, then the value for both parties needs to be roughly the same. And so if you give to me a tattered, run-of-the-mill card that's worth very little, and I give you a brand new, rare card that's worth a lot, most people would say that's not a very good exchange, and I just got ripped off. But when we ask what makes a good exchange, and then we look to the cross of Jesus, we see an exchange that is absolutely astounding because it is not at all fair or equal, and yet it is amazingly glorious. And tonight we're going to explore this unequal but glorious exchange that happened at the cross. When we think about this exchange, we need to first of all recognize that an exchange is different than a gift. A gift is one way. Someone gives it, someone else receives it. But an exchange is two-way, that both parties give and both parties are receiving. And so in the cross, Christ received something from us and we have received something from him. It was an exchange. It will be clear as we talk about what is actually exchanged that we're not talking here about any kind of earning or payment that we gave in order to gain our salvation in Christ. Salvation is fully a gift, unilaterally given by God to his own, which in no way can be earned or paid for by us. And so the exchange we're talking about is not the way in which we gain salvation for ourselves, but rather it's depicting what took place through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross on that Good Friday 2,000 years ago. So what is this glorious exchange at the cross? To use the words of the song that we just learned with Pastor Terry, it was his robes for mine. His robes of righteousness for my robes, my rags of sin. Jesus took my robe that is filthy with sin and instead gave me his robe that is clean and pure and righteous. Righteousness is a foundational attribute of God. Scripture is replete with references to his righteousness. Psalm 71, 19 says, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. Psalm 111.3 proclaims his righteousness endures forever. God is righteous. He's holy. He's without sin, without blemish. In stark contrast to God's perfect and abiding righteousness, human beings are characterized by unrighteousness. Romans 3.10-12 through 12 spells it out clearly. There is none righteous, not even one. The prophet Isaiah, writing to the people of God in Isaiah 64, 6, tells them that all their righteous deeds are like filthy rags. In other words, all that we as human beings can produce in ourselves is unrighteousness, uncleanness, and sin. 
We do not have the capacity in and of ourselves to produce true righteousness. And in fact, Isaiah is rather graphic here in his choice of words. When he says all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, the word that most of our translations render as filthy rags or polluted garments is literally minstrel rags. In an Old Testament law, any contact with blood like that would render a person unclean. And so all we can produce in ourselves is a bloody mess that renders us unclean before our God. Thus, if we, even as children of God, cannot produce righteousness in ourselves, the only hope we have of becoming righteous is if righteousness is given to us. And that is exactly what God has done for us through Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3 that all the accomplishments he could put confidence in were like rubbish, like dung, in comparison to gaining Christ and having the righteousness that comes from God, not a righteousness of my own. Isaiah 61.10 paints a picture that directly correlates with this song that we've just sung. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself and as a bride adorns herself. We do not have righteousness in ourselves. We cannot produce righteousness by ourselves, but Christ has given us the robe of righteousness, the robe of his own righteousness. And we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next until one day we also will shine with his complete righteousness in his presence for all eternity. But remember, we're talking here about an exchange that took place at the cross. So Christ giving us his very righteousness, that's an amazing gift. But what happened at the cross was not merely a gift, it was a glorious exchange. That means we also gave something to him. As surely as Christ gave us his clean right robe of righteousness, we gave to him our filthy rags of sin. Isaiah 53 speaks of our unrighteousness when it says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That is our unrighteousness, that we go our own way. And what happened to that unrighteousness? Isaiah says, the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, on the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. Christ received a robe of iniquity, of sin, of unrighteousness from us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was placed on Jesus just as surely as his righteousness was placed on us. In Revelation 19, we see a picture of Jesus as the conquering king seated on a white horse with eyes like fire, a sword coming out of his mouth, ready to carry out the wrath of God on all his enemies. But what is striking about this picture in Revelation 19 
is that it says in verse 13 that Jesus is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. I'm sure that in the context of Revelation 19, this blood on Jesus' robe is depicting the blood of his foes whom he has conquered. And yet, this picture of Jesus in a bloody robe while the bride, the people of God in verse eight, are clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. I think that beautifully depicts this exchange that took place at the cross. And it reminds me of Isaiah's graphic word choice of menstrual rags that represent our unrighteousness. It is our bloody uncleanness that God has placed on Jesus so that his pure righteousness could be placed on us. And though there will yet be a final bloody conquering of all the enemies of God, yet at the cross, Jesus conquered we who were his enemies by taking our unrighteousness upon himself and making we who trust in him no longer enemies, but friends. His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live for in my place he died. The glorious exchange at the cross grants repentant sinners the very righteousness of Christ. And through that, the glorious exchange at the cross grants repentant sinners inestimable worth. The worth of something is established by what someone is willing to pay for it. That's why something like eBay works, right? If someone really wants something, they will keep bidding higher than the other bidders until they can get it. And if you're one of those bidders, then you find out how much you truly value the item at the point where you say, eh, it's not worth that much. The worth of something is established by what someone is willing to pay for it. On the one hand, the cross clearly establishes the unworthiness of every human being. Scripture says there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who is worthy. Thus, we cannot save ourselves. We are helpless unless God initiates to rescue his people. And God did initiate by sending Jesus to live among us, to die in our place. And so the cross screams of our inability, our unworthiness to save ourselves. But on the other hand, the cross beautifully depicts the immense value and worth of every human being. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The price that God was willing to pay for your soul and mine indicates, no, it proves the inestimable worth that he grants to his own. That God would pay for the life of his own son with the life of his own son is astounding in and of itself. 
but the fact that he would pay that price for sinners who spit in his face, who push him away, who are determined to be their own God and go their own way, that is utterly mind-boggling. But that is the exchange that happened at the cross that Jesus received from me and you our utter unworthiness, and we received from him inestimable worth. Do you feel the magnitude of that mercy and that love? If it was just that Jesus received our unworthiness, then we would rightly feel deep shame. And if it was just that Jesus gave us great worth, we would undoubtedly swell with pride. But the fact that it is this exchange of unworthiness for great worth, it leaves no room for either shame or pride, but our hearts overflow with humble awe and gratitude. There's a wonderful theological concept here that I want us to grasp. The term is imputation. Imputation, imputed means given or ascribed based on what someone else has done. So children, if, if you're listening tonight, then uh, this is a good word for you, imputed. You can have some fun with it. It actually sounds funny, right, imputed. So you ask your parents after this is done what that means and see if they've been paying attention, all right? Imputed means that, that something is given or ascribed and it's based on what someone else has done. And so as Christians, there are two things that have been imputed to us. When Adam and Eve sinned way back at the beginning of creation, then their sin has been imputed to us, to every human being. Therefore, the Bible tells us that we are sinful even from the womb, even before we have volitionally chosen to do wrong, our very nature is bent away from God. We want to be our own God and to arrange for our own happiness in our own way. That is the sin of Adam that is imputed to us, that is given to us based on what he did. But then because of that imputed sin nature, we choose to sin every day. And thus our unrighteousness, our unworthiness is not merely because we have Adam as an ancestor, but because we ourselves are culpable. We all have sinned. We all stand guilty before God. If that sin nature was all that was imputed to us, then we would be in trouble because God's wrath will be carried out against sin. It must be. But something else is imputed to those whom God has rescued. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to we who belong to him. Listen to the second stanza of this song that we learned. His robes for mine, what cause have I for dread? God's daunting law Christ mastered in my stead. Faultless I stand with righteous works not mine, saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. Christ's righteousness was not merely his divine nature of holiness, but Christ's righteousness was because he perfectly mastered God's daunting law. 
Where the first Adam failed to obey God's law, Jesus as the second Adam perfectly, completely obeyed God's law. Therefore, his righteousness was earned by his perfect obedience. Now, we cannot earn righteousness. We break God's law continually. As James 2.10 says, even if we could keep the whole law and fail in just one point, we would be guilty of breaking all of it. And that is the case. We cannot earn righteousness. Our efforts merely result in filthy, bloody rags that make us unclean. But for those who trust in Jesus, his earned righteousness, his perfect obedience is imputed to us. It's given or ascribed to us, not based on what we've done, but on what he has done. Therefore, we can stand faultless, not because we ourselves are without fault, but because Christ's faultless record is imputed to us, given to us. That is what we as Christians receive in this glorious exchange at the cross. But again, remember, this is an exchange. So what did Jesus receive? Jesus received the Father's wrath for sin in order to satisfy the justice of God. You see, God is not merely a benevolent benefactor, kind of a grandfatherly figure who pats us on the head and says, there, there, it's really not that bad, you're all right. God does not merely turn his head and ignore our despicable sin. He is not like a lenient parent who says, ah, okay, I'll let you off this time, just don't do it again. No, God is absolutely holy, and any sin, all sin, is an utter abomination in his sight. He cannot stand sin. And God is not only absolutely holy, he is also fully just. If he ignored or excused sin or simply let us off the hook, he would not be just, and therefore he would not be righteous either. His righteousness demands that his justice be carried out against the evil of sin. Sin must be paid for. God's just wrath against sin and evil must be carried out. If Jesus had not come and lived and died in our place, God's wrath would still have been carried out, but it would have been carried out upon every last one of us. Our sin would be paid for by us, and we would suffer that wrath of God apart from him for all eternity. And in fact, if you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian, then that is still your destiny. You will one day face the wrath of God for your sin and be cast away from his presence, away from his protection, away from his love forever. So if that is you, I beg of you to listen to what Christ has done on your behalf. Turn from your sin to trust in his mercy toward you. Receive this amazing gift that he purchased for you at such great cost. Well, Jesus did come, and he lived and died in our place. 
And there's another beautiful theological concept here. Kids, here's another big word for you, propitiation. Propitiation. Propitiation means satisfaction, that God's justice is satisfied because his wrath on sin is poured out. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The payment for our sin is utter separation from God, and Jesus drank that cup of the Father's wrath. Jesus bore in his body on that cross the utter anguish of total separation from the Father. What he went through on the cross was more than the travail of his body being tortured and dying. It was the Father turning his face away from him, from his beloved Son. But in that, God's justice was satisfied. God was pleased in that, Isaiah 53 says. That is propitiation. Jesus is fully worthy. He perfectly fulfilled God's law. He alone earned righteousness by his sinless life. We, like every human being apart from Jesus, we're fully unworthy. We've broken God's law again and again. We cannot earn righteousness. Instead, all we have earned is God's judgment and wrath. But in this glorious exchange that happened at the cross, Jesus took our unworthiness upon himself, and Jesus received the just payment for that unworthiness, for our unworthiness. And because that sin was paid for, and God's justice was satisfied, then God has proved righteous. God is not unjust in freely granting to us the righteousness of Christ and bestowing the highest worth on we who trust in him. His robes for mine. God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed, and thus the Father's pleased. Christ drank God's wrath of sin, then cried, "'Tis done. Sin's wage is paid." Propitiation one. The cross proves our unworthiness because a ransom had to be paid for us. But wonder of wonders, that ransom was paid. A ransom so high and so astounding that it shouts for all the world to hear, this child is mine and I love him. This daughter is mine and I delight in her. Our value is established and our ransom is paid at the cross. We've seen tonight that the glorious exchange at the cross grants repentant sinners the very righteousness of Christ. The glorious exchange at the cross grants repentant sinners inestimable worth. And finally, this glorious exchange at the cross grants repentant sinners full acceptance and welcome. My sin placed on Christ and his righteousness placed on me that's not just merely some abstract theological concept that's nice to know about, but it's a rock-solid reality that anchors me, that gives me hope, 
especially in such an anxious and chaotic time as we are currently experiencing. For we who trust in Christ, not only are we given a righteousness not our own, not only are we granted great worth by what Christ has paid for us, but the result of all that is that we are welcomed into the very family of God. Rather than being condemned as his enemies, we are welcomed as his friends. Rather than being left alone and shut out of the celebration, we are brought in. And we are brought in not merely as the celebrants on the sidelines, but as the bride, the one who will share in the deepest intimacy with the bridegroom. Amazing. There's a longing that is built into our souls from the beginning, a longing to belong, to be included, to connect, to not be alone, to not be left out. We want desperately to be on the inside, not on the outside. And though that longing gets twisted by our sin nature into a demand for acceptance, at its core, it is a good longing given to us by God in order that we would find the fulfillment for that longing in Him alone. The problem, though, is that our sin separates us from God and keeps us on the outside. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, apart from Christ, we were separated, alienated, strangers, having no hope and without God in the world. Unlike many so-called Christian philosophies in our world today, which seek to just erase sin and judgment and hell in favor of kind of this very nice God who loves everyone, in contrast to that, the Bible makes it clear that sin must be paid for in order for God to be just and righteous. Therefore, on the cross, Jesus experienced the condemnation that you and I deserve because of our sin. He was separated and alienated from God so that you and I, if we trust in him, can be welcomed, included, loved, accepted. He is the only beloved son of God, was condemned as a horrific sinner so that we who were God's enemies could be welcomed into his family. His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. Jesus cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
was the cry of one abandoned, cut off from the Father, bearing the curse of sin. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Jesus was cursed. That speaks of something far deeper than physical agony. But he was cursed so that we then could be blessed, that we could receive the blessing of God. For all we who trust in Christ, that blessing given to us through this glorious exchange at the cross is what Paul proclaims in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Say that with me where you are at. Let that sink deep in your heart. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. Why? Because Christ bore that condemnation for us. Christ was condemned so that we can be accepted. Listen to what the Word of God says about our acceptance in Christ. Ephesians 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2, 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Romans 9, 25, those who were not my people, I will call my people and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. Romans 8, 15 through 17, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. At the cross, Jesus was condemned so that we could be accepted. Jesus was excluded so that we could be included. Jesus was forsaken so that we could be welcomed. That is the down-to-earth relational result of this glorious exchange when our sin is placed on Christ and his righteousness is placed on us. His robes for mine. Such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe.
He as though I, accursed and left alone. I as though he embraced and welcomed home. Thank you so much for joining with us on this Good Friday evening to remember both in somberness and, and seriousness and also great celebration this great exchange that has happened through the cross of Christ. And as we enter into Holy Saturday tomorrow, then I hope that these great truths of what Christ has accomplished for us will sink deep in your heart and your soul. Holy Saturday is, is meant to be a day of, of silence and of waiting as, as we are in between Christ's death and his resurrection. And so let's allow these things to sink deep in our hearts as we wait for that glorious celebration on Easter morning. If you'd like to uh, join with uh, me tomorrow morning and, and those who will be participating in the uh, time of, of solitude, reflection, sharing, um, I'd love to uh, have you there. And uh, I think there's a link that you can click either through the, what was sent out on the plug-in or uh, on your screen there. Will you pray with me now as we close? Jesus, we cling to you and we marvel at the cost that you paid, the worth that you have given to us who are your own. We cannot even fathom the agony that you experienced as the beloved Son of God to be forsaken by the Father, bearing his wrath, not for your own sin, but for the sin of us, your enemies. How can that be amazing love? Thank you for this glorious exchange that you made that we could be welcomed into your family accepted and known and called your beloved. May these truths anchor our hearts in all the anxiety that we face in such a time as this. So Lord, we love you, we cling to you, and we thank you. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen and amen.